Yeah, I tried to say what you just said on some occasions and really upset partners by saying that. I do feel that my research is more creative than pottery. I love pottery. I started it as a craft. I still wholly enjoy it as a craft. I drink my coffee out of cups I made. I eat my cereal out of a bowl I made. I love giving it as gifts. I love when people use it. I really dislike when I make a cup and people put it on display, on the shelf. I'm really thoroughly a crafty potter. And in that regard, I think that everything has been made before for thousands of years. The degree of originality is rather minimal, but I enjoy it. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Professor Nadav Drucker. Nadav is a theoretical physicist and experimental potter. He is a professor of theoretical physics at King's College, London, and through his ceramic artworks, he endeavors to mirror the creativity of his scientific research. Nadav's work can be seen at the Knight Web Gallery in London. Nadav explains how his ceramics can lead to simpler physics formulas. He shares his thoughts on craftsmanship, originality, and artistry, and reveals the secrets of time travel and parallel universes. Our guest today is Professor Nadav Jukar. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Welcome. So, Professor Jukar, you have two passions or areas of interest that seem that might seem very much on the opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, without too much in common. But you found a way to integrate, infuse those two sides of your work. Firstly, you're a professor of theoretical physics at King's College London, uh, where you're working on very abstract thinking and the cutting edge of knowledge. And on the other side, you're working with pottery and ceramics, maybe something very ancient, working with your hands. And I've seen them, they're in the shape of spheres and donuts and toruses and loops with your equations inscribed in them. That seems very unique. Can you start just by telling us about your ceramics work, how you're combining both that artistic side and the theoretical physics side of your work? Yes, indeed. So I've been doing ceramics for many years. And a few years ago, I decided to combine it with my research in theoretical physics. And in particular, what I do is I take a research project that I'm working on or that I worked on in the past and choose a shape to represent it, a vase or a, a, a more abstract shape or a plate or a bowl, a particular design that somehow to me represents my research project. It can be a shape that appeared in a figure or a graph in, the, in my research paper, or it can be some kind of more abstract relation. And I make a series of pieces with that shape, with some design elements related to the research, and I decorate them with my equations. And this is for me a way to combine my two 
hobbies. I was asked many times in the past, what is the relation between the two? And I always stuttered and couldn't find an answer. And so to me, they were never contradictory. In a way, I forced an answer by just putting them together. You mentioned that there is some level of spark of inspiration while you're doing your research, a shape of a graph or an equation that possibly, which is shapely and, and maybe speaks to the material uh, world of ceramics and pottery. Do you find that while you're working with that, there's some benefit in terms of creativity or thinking through a research project while you're in the actual, say, ceramics lab or, or I don't guess it's not a lab, it's a studio probably. <laughs> So it does it go both directions, I guess, is my question. Um, I think I have three answers to that question. So the first level, I would say very little. I take my research. Actually, during my research, I start developing the idea of how the shape would be, what the pots will look like. Sometimes I start making them even before my research is complete. And then I go and make the pots. And some parts of it, some parts of the ceramic work is very focused. Some of it, working on the wheel, for example, I find extremely meditative. But uh, decorating is, uh, is quite intricate and requires a lot of concentration. And to some extent, I don't have the ability to think so freely. I just really, really focus on what I'm doing. But it does influence my research in that I examine my research, I plan my piece, I go back and look at the formulas, I choose them, I find new representations of them. If I have a complicated formula, I may find that I wouldn't want to put as it stands on my piece. I look for simplifications of it. And then these simplifications can feed back into my research. Or when I give a talk, I could choose to show the simplified version that I, I didn't feel that I needed to do during my research, but I did need to do it for the ceramic. So that would be one answer. Another answer is that actually a dream that I have of using ceramics to give physics talk. When I started doing physics, we still presented our research on real physical slides on a, on a projector. And nowadays we use PowerPoint. But there are also these machines, these visualizers, where you put a piece of paper under them and they project it on the screen. And what I want to do is use clay tablets to write on them what would be on my slide, what other people would put up on a PowerPoint presentation and project them on the, on the wall and talk at the same time about my research and about the ceramic uh, manifestation of it, uh, the materials, the process, and so on. But I never got around to making it, and it is a bit stressful because you need to make all these things. 
And then instead of walking to the seminar with a USB <laughs> drive, I need to walk with a suitcase with 20 tablets, 20 play <laughs> tablets. Yeah. <laughs> and then the third one is that I actually, during lockdown, I didn't do a lot of ceramics. But one thing that I tried to do was a series of works related to my teaching. So this was a course on quantum mechanics. And I, I made some pieces related to different concepts in quantum mechanics. And that was to inspire my students. So it wasn't that it inspired my research, but that was a way to inspire my students. That's when we were doing remote uh, teaching. Everything was recorded. Some of my colleagues were concerned that it's not professional enough, or maybe they had uh, weird memories from the movie Ghost. They thought it was very inappropriate or maybe risque. <laughs> Show me, because I, I filmed myself on the wheel mm -hmm. and they found that it may be too erotic to show to the students. <laughs> I seen in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so you had mentioned that using an expressive kind of artistic ways of, of making it more tangible for people for something that's maybe just in, in your head and theoretical and also making it less less intimidating in a way. I love the, what you said about, you know, maybe having to simplify it enough because you're then kind of sharing it with a, a more of a mass public that you wouldn't normally share the very complicated equations with. That I think speaks to uh, the creative refinement of something and stripping it down to its, what you really needed to express something. On that topic of uh, simplification, this iterative process you described, we often hear about this concept of elegance um, in science, in computer science, and it sounds something like something very similar. You have an equation that might work, but it doesn't quote unquote feel right. Two, two questions here. Do you have a definition of elegance when you're talking about, for example, equations? Does that translate into your ceramics? Is your feeling of something that's incomplete or too complicated or not complicated enough? I do not have a definition. It's the kind of thing that you see it and you, it feels right. Yes. Then you might show it to somebody else and they're like, no, that's only you. That may think that's beautiful. This baby, only the mother thinks is beautiful. But um, <laughs> that's fine. Either I go with my intuition or I try to refine it more. And yes, that is very much manifested in, in what I do. I, I do put the equations that I like the best. Uh, they're much more prominent on my pieces than some kind of other ugly equations. I, some, some of my research doesn't end with something beautiful. It still works. So I still have to do it, but I'm, I'm far more comfortable when I have these things that really work. And sometimes what I do is, I mean, most, most of the time what I do is very, very complicated. And even the simplified equations or expressions cannot be understood by the general public. But I 
do like to put occasionally things that are simple or general enough that at least other technical people would get the idea, would get the joke, what exactly things are representing. Another kind of theme that we, we come across and I'm kind of made me think of this is uh, something that's either what's art and what's craft. Ceramics and pottery, since it is kind of this ancient tradition, in a lot of ways seems like craft and you can have some expression. But an equation that you're coming up with that maybe has never happened before or has never been formulated in a certain way, I guess in a certain way is almost more art than craft. Though you wouldn't think of it that way. Is that true? You're not just doing the math we're doing. You're trying to come up with equations that maybe express some truth or something or prove something that's never been done before. So is that more artistic than the ceramic work? Yeah, I tried to say what you just said in some occasions and really upset potters by saying that. I do feel that my research is more creative than pottery. I love pottery. I started it as a craft. I still wholly enjoy it as a craft. I drink my coffee out of cups I made. I eat my cereal out of a bowl I made. I love giving it as gifts. I love when people use it. I really dislike when I make a cup and people put it on display on the shelf. I'm really thoroughly a crafty potter. And in that regard, I think that everything has been made before for thousands of years. The degree of originality is rather minimal, but I enjoy it. At least for me, just making that is not particularly creative or original. It's just very enjoyable. Other potters very much disagree with me. That's fine. I also accept their point. But for me, this combination was a way to bring a higher level of originality and artistry to my ceramics. So it's no longer a craft. And the degree of creativity that I have in my research, because of course scientific research is very original and I constantly create knowledge. So that's what I wanted to manifest in my ceramics and have them be very original objects, even if the shape itself tends to be traditional. Also, the materials I use and the processes are very traditional. I studied in very traditional pottery studios and I use the materials and techniques that worked for hundreds of years. I don't have a clay 3D printer or stuff like that. I'd be fascinated to play with one, but these things do exist. But that's not my process. I or, or glaze printing, this also exists, transfers of exact things. I'm, I sometimes think about doing it, but for the most part, my glazes, uh, I, I take my pot and I dip it in the glaze and whatever colors comes with it, that's fine. You can still see my writing inscribed underneath 
is, so I have this combination of very traditional and ultra modern. You told a little bit of the story about how you started studying ceramics. I read that was while you're doing your PhD as well and kind of how it, it evolved. Could you describe how you try to balance your artistic workload and your professional workload? Was it often kind of one was more in focus than the other? Um, did you find it difficult or easy? So when I started, it was just a hobby. I took a course during my PhD when I was fed up with doing physics 24-7. And I started doing it one hour a week, and it grew to a few hours a week. And then when I started to move around the world as a postdoc, I tried in every place that I was to find a place to do it, some kind of studio that would allow me to work there for a few hours. For many years, it was just a small hobby. I, I became reasonably good, but I wasn't spending so much time on it. At the back of my head, I always had the dream of having my own studio. On the other hand, I had the fear that it would suck me in and I would spend too much time on it. And also that I wouldn't have what to do with what I produce. I could be very prolific, making a hundred cups in a day. And but I don't want to spend the time going to flea markets and selling them for pennies. So finally, when I moved to London and got a job here at the university, I did decide to get my own studio and it's in my garden. And then there are periods that I don't use it for months, even for a year. And then other times where I am there for at least a few minutes every day the process of ceramic is very cyclical. Start making a piece, you need to wait for it to dry a bit, then you continue working on it, then it needs to dry more, then you decorate it, then it dries more, then you fire it, then you glaze it, fire it again, and then it's finished. But usually when you do this, and, and this process can take, if it's very, very focused, maybe 10 days, but usually it stretches over weeks or a couple of months. And usually you don't produce one full kiln and then fire it and that's it. You get into this process of making some pieces and making some more and you continue and it's a constant thing and it tends to draw me in when I do it. And that's why when I'm, I have deadlines at work or more, know that I don't have the flexibility, I will tend to stop with the ceramics. It's too demanding and I don't want to abandon things halfway through. So I have periods when I can balance them well and I have periods when one overtakes the other. It does sound very meditative. You're going at the pace of your materials. You can't go any faster and you're forced to kind of slow down to the to what the, uh, the clay will let you do. Yeah. Why don't we ask a theoretical physics question that we're all interested in? When do you think we will be able to time travel or visit parallel universes? Well, we did start time traveling at least half an hour ago. All three of us together were traveling for half an hour forward in time. The problem is traveling back in time, that's what you are asking. 
this is a, a, a common question and a, a common a obnoxious reply. I don't think it's just supposed to be a stupid answer. It really has some meaning to the way we think about time travel. Even when we think about the time machine, and I actually wrote a paper some years ago about systems with essentially time travel, where you could go to the past, something known as a good old universe. So equations of general relativity, Einstein's field equation, do allow solutions where as you age, you return to where you used to be. You meet yourself again in your past. It's the technical terms, closed timeline curves. Well, we don't expect these things to exist. And in my paper, I found a particular mechanism that prevents them. And in a certain very restricted set of circumstances, there is a much broader concept of chronology protection, some kind of combination of all kinds of things in physics that should prevent this from happening. But when we think in physics about time travel or about the motion to a parallel universe, we don't think of anything different from our usual motion, both in space and in time. The idea is, is not some kind of crazy car like from back in the future, but actually really opening a door, walking through there. When you walk through a door, you walk through time and through space to another room, to another time in the future. But if the universe was different, if we were living in a girdle universe, that other room could be in your past. And then once you walked out of the room, you're back in the same place, but at an earlier time. So the reason my answer that we are walking forward in time is not really all that different. I, if we were able to travel back in time or to a parallel universe, I don't think it would be much different from our regular experience. What would be the difference between a parallel universe and a different continent? I mean, now we can talk to each other across great distances, but for people in the past, you could be in North America or you could be in Europe, but these existences were not simultaneous. You are either here or you were there. These were parallel universes with the possibility to travel between them. The whole idea of a special relativity was that there isn't a concept of simultaneity. Even back then, when you couldn't zoom, when you couldn't see each other across great distances, you could still send signals and telegrams and so on. And Einstein realized that still that happened at a finite speed. So even if you were in North America and in Europe, and you thought that what you're doing is at the same time. It's not. There is this barrier that you cannot uh, pass faster than the speed of light. So we're, we are living in parallel universes to some extent. So it's a bit of a cop-out. 
Oh, I kind of like it. What uh, what I liked was, you know, that if and when it have, it'll be just like walking from one room to another, which to me suggests there won't be a machine or something that gets us there. It'll be our understanding and consciousness that allows us to get there. Maybe the same way we, you know, I don't know how many, whatever years ago we thought everything revolved around us and it doesn't, or earth is flat. Maybe at some point our consciousness will expand enough to understand and be able to travel that way. That's how I take it. (laughs) Yeah. You called your first answer. I think you said a, a stupid answer, but it made me really think if time travel, universe, parallel universe travel is the same as normal travel, why do we desire to be in a different time or a different place uh, is, a, is a deeper question. I don't think it was a... I, I'm much more excited to travel to the future rather than to the past. So just sitting here waiting is exciting. The past already passed. Well, I think that is a great line to close our conversation on. We should desire to go into the future. The past is the past. Nadav, it was a, a genuine pleasure to talk to you and see how you're adding creativity into many different areas of your life. Uh, thank you so much. Yes, really enjoyable and, and beautiful. Even if you think your, your potter is, is crafted, it's still quite beautiful. So uh, keep it up. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a joy. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.